This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. The Apostle Paul is writing to these people in these uh, churches in the region of Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words in that specific instance and dilemma and context of the first century. So that your work then would not be limited to them, but we can read over their shoulder in a sense to see how you reveal yourself to see what really matters. So I pray, Lord, as we attend to um, what Paul is saying here about the centrality of the gospel, that you would move upon us to be people who are gospel-centered. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, There's an ancient Greek story, and you may know this name but may not know uh, the actual story, about a guy named Jason and the Argonauts. So Jason was this uh, adventurer kind of guy, And uh, he had a ship called the Argo, which is a cool ship name. Um, So Jason had this ship called the Argo, and he had his sailors on the ship, the Argonauts. It just means sailors on the Argo, Argonaut. But Jason and the Argonauts, they were uh, going on this important quest. And what it was this morning isn't important. But they knew that the route that they had to take on this quest was that they were going to have to go past a series of very dangerous islands that had led to many, many shipwrecks before. They were going to be going past the sirens. And you may have heard the sirens or the sirens call before. What this was in ancient Greek mythology, the sirens were like these monster creatures, for better or worse. They had the bodies of birds, they had the face of women, and they sang the most beautiful, alluring, seductive song in the world. What would happen is sailors would sail past these islands where the sirens lived, And the sirens wanted to eat the sailors. So what they would do is they would start singing this beautiful song. And the song was so enticing, so seductive, that sailors could not resist it. They would turn their ships toward these islands thinking, I've got to see who's singing this beautiful song. I've got to go to where this song is. And as they sailed toward the island, they would become shipwrecked. The song was so seductive that it had led to so many ships being wrecked, sailors only finding out too late that this song was actually sung by monsters who wanted to eat them. Now, Jason and the Argonauts, they knew this story. It was a legend. And they devised a plan. We've got to sail past these islands. We've got to go past the sirens. And they're going to sing their song. And it's going to be enticing. But what we can do is we can bring with us Orpheus. Orpheus was a friend of Jason's. He was a renowned musician and poet. And Jason and the Argonauts' plan was when they came in sight 
of these islands. When that siren song started to play, Orpheus would pull out his lute and play a more beautiful song louder. And that beautiful song from Orpheus would drive out the, tempta- the, 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 the tempting song, the seductive song of the sirens. Orpheus would pull his instrument out and play music that was louder and more beautiful to drown out the siren's song with a better song. Last week we talked about this basic foundational idea that the good news of Jesus Christ is just that. It's good news. It's a report of something that has been accomplished by Jesus. But so often the gospel, or what Jesus is about in church, is presented as good advice. That Jesus has uh, some good ideas for us to, we're going to do these things. And if we do these things, if we really come through on this list of things on how to be a good person, then we will be accepted. Then God will love us. And that difference between good news and good advice could not be more drastic. It's the difference between Orpheus' song that will save your life, the good news of the gospel, and the siren song that will lead you to shipwreck and death. The gospel is good advice. The gospel is the most revolutionary uh, thing that has ever entered into human history. The idea that we can be right with God not because of something we do, not because of our good intentions, not because we uh, get an A plus at the end of life and our paper is graded. The idea that we can receive salvation, vindication, justification before God as a gift, as something to be received with open hands. What's happened in Galatians, and the reason why the Apostle Paul speaks here that he's astonished in verse 6, is that he has gotten some horrible news about people he loves. He's found out that these churches that he helped start, these people whose lives he had poured into and they had poured into his life, these people who were close to him, had begun to listen to a siren song. And they weren't realizing that they were about to lead themselves into shipwreck. It's why his, his language in Galatians is so passionate. In our terms, sometimes rude. There are some things Paul says to the Galatians that if someone said them to me, I'd be offended. How dare you speak to me that way? But the reason why he is so passionate here is because he knows the stakes are high. He knows he isn't just saying, hey guys, I think you're going to... He knows it's like yelling at a kid that's about to run into oncoming traffic. You've got to get their attention because they have no idea what they're about to run into. So the background is that Paul had traveled. Galatia was a region in current-day Turkey, um, like central Turkey. So if you've got a world map in your brain, um, that's where it is now. And he had traveled to a number of different cities in the region of Galatia, to start churches. And for context, most of these churches were incredibly small. So, you know, back then, they didn't have church buildings. They didn't have anything. The, the, the biggest churches would max out about 30 people. Um, and they would be dotted in the cities. There'd be all these little, more or less, house churches. 
And Paul had planted all of these churches, helped get them started, get them on a good footing, and then he had moved on to another region. Because that was his calling, that was his goal, to go around to these different cities in the Roman Empire to start these new churches. But not long afterward, he's gotten word that things have gone poorly. Because what's happened is Paul is essentially being followed around. He's being followed around to the cities that he goes to by a group of people that are essentially trying to undermine all of his work. They're going to the churches that he planted after he leaves. And they tell him, Paul can't be trusted. Paul can't be trusted as a messenger of Jesus. He's a rogue, and he only gives you half the gospel. He's leaving you immature. He's leaving you babies in the faith. And they're saying, but we've got the secret power. We've got the special, the rest of the message that can help you mature. They're saying, yeah, Paul told you to trust in Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus for salvation. But that's just the on-ramp. That's just the first step. That's just the ABCs. He hasn't taught you how to actually live, and we can. We can tell you how to mature. We can tell you how to feel secure about yourself. We can tell you how to overcome the power of sin and the temptations that you face. Now, Paul doesn't specify in these verses that we read this morning what they are telling the people. And we'll talk about it more in detail in the next few weeks. But essentially what these people were saying is they were coming to people who were not ethnically Jewish at all. No cultural background in Judaism at all. And they're saying, if you really want to grow in your faith, if you really want to know the depth of God's love for you, you need to prove yourself by becoming culturally Jewish. Paul only gave you the ABCs. He only gave you the on-ramp. But to get down the road, to really know that God loves you, you need to become culturally Jewish. They were essentially saying, you need your faith in Jesus and His finished work plus this other thing. You need Jesus plus. Jesus plus something else to be made whole. That the work of Jesus is not actually enough. If you want full salvation, if you want to be truly rescued, if you want to know that God loves you, you need to do these things. You need to jump through these hoops. And only then can you be sure. But Paul uses the most extreme language here in the verses that I read to make clear that to go down this path is the, it's the pathway of curse, not blessing. It's the pathway of destruction. It's not maturity. Adding something on to Jesus to feel like that's going to be the key to make me feel whole or make me whole or make God actually really love me and me feel secure in that. That's not maturity. That's curse. Later on in Galatians, Paul will use a number of different illustrations to speak about this. These people are telling the Galatian folks, like, if you want the love of Jesus, to be sure of it, you need faith in Jesus plus. And Paul will speak of it, that's leaving freedom for slavery. That's not going further in freedom. It's leaving freedom for slavery. It's rebuilding a destroyed building that should remain destroyed. He speaks about it too. It's like a mature adult going back and following 
uh, rules that are intended for young children. To think of it this way, it's like if, if we went out here speaking of a kid in the road. We go out to here. It's not a super busy road, but you know, young kid, you say, hold my hand when we cross the street. Let's not go until we're holding hands. Now, if it's a five-year-old, that totally makes sense. They're still learning, like, how dangerous cars can be. You know, I've got to be aware of my surroundings. But if my mom and I walked out there and mom said, 40-year-old Tim, hold my hand across the street, we'd all go, what? what? Tim didn't get something. It didn't, like, connect when he was five. Right? Well, Paul essentially says exactly that to the Galatians. That if you guys go back and you start playing by these religious rules that found their fulfillment in Jesus, that were pointing to Jesus, if you do that, it's like being the 40-year-old that goes out and needs to hold an adult's hand across the street. And we'll get there a little bit more later. All of these images, though, hit the basic, same basic thing. To add anything to Jesus, to feel like we need to be whole, to look to a different source, to add anything to Jesus and His grace is subtraction. Always. The gospel is the greatest news in the world and anything that distracts us from looking to Christ and His sufficiency and His power is a siren's song that leads to destruction. Because our hope isn't our status, it's not our background, it's not our heritage, it's not our good deeds, it's not our good intentions. Our hope is not big, powerful, emotional experiences. Those will happen, those will come and go. Our hope is not impressive preachers or teachers. Those can be great and helpful, but they're not always there. Our hope is Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's only Jesus. Now, we are not, I've talked about this before. We're not in too much danger of somebody coming to town and saying, hey, uh, if you really want to be secure, you need to be circumcised. In Dunn, North Carolina, we're not going to have somebody come in and say, you need to be culturally Jewish if you're serious about your faith. But that concept, that idea of Jesus plus, that I need Jesus plus something else to be accepted by other Christians, to be secure and know that God loves me, I need Jesus plus something else to feel like the Father delights in me is a very real thing. For us, it's I need Jesus plus I need a great reputation. I need a great reputation. Now, is a great reputation, a good reputation with other people a good thing? Yeah, it's a really good thing. But that cannot be where your worth and your value is tied up because that can ebb and flow. Another one, uh, I, need, I need my faith in Jesus, plus I need financial security. You know, uh, I'm not going to pick on him too much, but Dave Ramsey's a big name. People take these financial peace university things, and he's got some good ideas, some very helpful ideas about debt. But what gets communicated sometimes, I feel like, when people are talking about that, is that I will feel secure, I will feel like I can sing and dance and live in the Father's delight for me when my credit card debt's paid off. But not until then. Until then, I'm kind of like sub-whatever. Until then, I can't delight in the Father's delight in me. Now, is being good with money a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. Is saving money a good thing? Yes, absolutely. But my worth is not tied up in that whatsoever. 
I could be the worst person with money in the world and know that the Father delights in me. I don't need Jesus and faith in Him plus, you know, a healthy 401k to feel like I am worthy of love, to feel like I'm a good person. You know, we could keep going. And most of these, you may notice, are good things. And that's the dangerous thing about Jesus plus because it's never, I need Jesus plus to run around and have a string of uh, non-serious relationships. It's never, I need Jesus plus a drug addiction. It's always something that sounds good on paper, that does sound like maturity. Like, I need Jesus plus... um, I need Jesus plus... uh, Our family, we're a good family because we have Jesus plus we made the decision to do private school. Now, we're serious about our... We're really Christian. Or, we made the decision to do public school. Look how great we are. Or, we made the decision to do homeschool. All of those are good options. They can be excellent options. But what winds up happening in church culture is we tie that up with things of identity... We tie that up with like, now I'm serious about my faith. I need Jesus plus this other thing to be whole. To feel like the Father delights in me. I could keep going. We could talk about politics and patriotism. We can talk about ideal pictures of what a family is. You know, the white picket fence and the two and a half kids. I've never seen a half kid. Um, Or I need a successful career. Or I need trophies in the trophy case that I can point to when people come in. I need my diplomas and my degrees on the wall. I could keep listing things, but just hear me clearly. Anything other than Jesus that we're chasing after to find our identity, to to feel like we need to make ourselves whole, that is an idol that will take our heart off of God. That is a siren's song that will destroy our hearts. And this leads to a very important question. So these, are, uh, uh, these can be almost, think of them as diagnostic questions. How do we know when we're doing this? Because it's tricky. Like I said, a lot of those are good things. It is good to pursue being wise with money. It is good to pursue uh, being a good citizen and having a good reputation. How do we know when those things are becoming sirens, songs, that are pulling our heart off of Jesus? Well... Here's, a couple, here's three questions. What do I run to to comfort myself when things are going wrong? So something goes wrong and I'm stressed out and I'm anxious. What do I run to to make myself feel better? Do I log in and check out my investments are doing and then feel real good? that my investments are doing good, even though I had no part in the investment doing good at all? Do I pat myself on the back that I never uh, struggled with that thing? That I've never struggled with this thing that that other person has struggled with? Where do I go to to comfort myself? Do I say, well, yeah, I, uh, but I'm, I'm a good... You know, where do we run to for comfort? Is, is it... That we are delighted in by God? Is it that we are freed by Jesus? Or do we run to, I'm the best pitcher on my baseball team. Or I'm, <laughs> I'm a ranked player in Call of Duty. Or, 
I don't know why that came to mind, but because I am not. Um, <laughs> so that where do we run to for comfort when things are things are going wonky? Here's another one. What do we think of when we're on the defensive? When somebody may when it feels like our character is being attacked or something like where what do I run to? Do I go, well, I've done this, this, this? Do I start listing things that I've done? Now, I'm not saying don't defend your character, but is the main thing you run to something about what you've done? Or uh, you didn't talk about me, but I do live in this neighborhood. Whatever. And here's the be- probably the best one. What do we judge others about the most harshly? What do we judge other people about the most harshly? That's always a great sign of a thing that we're adding to Jesus because it is something that whether we realize it or not, we are wanting them to meet a standard for us to be okay with them, to treat them with kindness. So what is the thing I judge others about most harshly that often reveals what tugs on our hearts where we are trying to build an identity? Now, those are hard questions to ask <laughs> and to say, but being able to identify these things that pull of our heart, pull at our heart is the most incredibly helpful thing because we'll be able to name the true temptations that pull at our hearts the most. We'll be able to recognize when that siren song starts playing and we'll be able to recognize it really quick before it starts pulling us in. We'll be able to name exactly what it is. And being able to do that means that when those things start to pull at our hearts, we can pull our hearts off of them and turn to Jesus. When we start trying to justify ourselves by what we've done or how much money we have in the bank or the good decisions that we've made in our life, we can say, stop. I don't need to make a resume to prove to myself that I'm loved. The foundation of who I am, the very bedrock, is that Jesus worked on my behalf, his life, death, and resurrection to set me free. And that will be true always. That is the most important thing about me. I am justified in God's sight by faith. We can never leave that behind. Being able to know when our hearts are being pulled out, when those siren songs are playing, means we can turn away from them and we can turn Orpheus' song all the way up. Turn the gospel up to 11. Yes, that's a Spinal Tap reference. And that, friends, is actually what the Christian life is. It's left, right, repentance, faith. Repentance, faith. It is repenting of the things we look to that can never satisfy and placing our heart affections on Jesus. Repentance, faith. It is a walk. And as we walk in this life, we grow in this. And sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back, honestly. It's less a straight line and more this ascending spiral that sometimes dips pretty low, but then sometimes can go high as well. But as we progress in repentance and faith in that two-step walk of the Christian life, pulling our hearts off the things that cannot satisfy and finding our all in the love of God for us, We find freedom that is able to put all those pluses, the Jesus plus stuff, in its proper place. And trust the intentions of Jesus for us. And when you realize you don't need anything else other than the love of Jesus for you to make you whole, and that this love is the foundation of everything else, 
It is the ultimate freedom. It's why Paul here in Galatians can tell the people who are receiving this letter in dramatic language that their hope is in the gospel and not in him. Think about this. He's got people that are literally tailing him and and trying to undo the work that he does. He has people following him around. And when he leaves, they come in and try to confuse. His character is being attacked 100%. But what does Paul say right there? It's not about me. If we show up or an angel from heaven shows up or anybody shows up and starts telling you a different gospel than the good news of Jesus Christ, let them be cursed. Let me be cursed is what he's saying. It's not about Paul. It's about the glorious good news of the gospel. His defense is not, hey, I'm actually, you should really just latch yourself to me. Because he's not trying to make disciples of Paul. He's not trying to make followers of Paul. He's trying to make followers of Jesus because he knows as Paul, he might be able to teach and preach. That might be his calling in life, but he can't help anybody other than to point them. He is just another beggar who is telling other beggars where bread is. We're all hungry. This is where I found it and where I keep finding it. It's why Paul can speak in verse 10, That he's now freed from trying to win the approval of other people. He doesn't have to please people anymore. He's been freed from that. And now that he doesn't have to please people, he can truly love and serve them. All of this is true for us too. The gospel can take root in our heart and we realize that Jesus gives all the vindication to us that we need. We don't have to make ourselves worthy of his love. He makes us worthy. By giving us His love. We don't have to make ourselves lovable or lovely in God's sight. He loves us and that's what makes us lovely. And this isn't just true for us individually. It's true for us as a community. This all belongs to us. And it's something that we are called to embody and remind each other of. That the love of God is not something we earn. Our worth is not defined by who Jesus by ourselves, but it's defined by who Jesus is and who we are because of who He is. To come back to our illustration that I mentioned at the beginning, there are going to be seasons in our church's life when you're going to be more like Jason on the ship. When you're going to need your sisters and brothers in Jesus to proclaim the reality of the gospel to you because you are being tempted to run down a different siren song into destruction. Sometimes you're going to be Jason. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. But as we become become deeper and deeper friends, we actually come to know the, the things of each other's temptations. We know the things. And it's not going to be all the same for us individually. But sometimes you're going to be Jason. And you're going to need to have your ear open to your brothers and sisters as they're trying to sing to you the better song. The siren song of things that you're tempted to add to Jesus to prove that you're worthy. And it's going to pull you in. And you're going to need people singing to you the gospel. In other seasons, you're going to be Orpheus. And this is why it is so crucial that we don't just do church when we're struggling. You know, a lot of times, we, you know, I've got to get back in church. 
because I'm having a hard time. And we feel like it's almost like we're going to a jiffy lube to get an oil change. And then it's going to run fine for a little while. But it is crucial that when things are going okay, that we are still all in. Because there's going to be seasons where you're going to need to be Orpheus. When you're going to need to be attentive to what you see in your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you're going to need to almost read between the lines. Not to crush them and confront them. That's not what I mean. But to call them back to the true song of the gospel. Now being a Jason or being an Orpheus in our image. That's going to require time. It's going to require effort. It's going to require genuine friendship. It's going to require us leaning in on this and and, and making our community together and each other um, priorities. Um, It's going to mean being together. And I don't just mean on Sunday morning that we grow in this. But as we do, as we travel together, we can embody what the church is meant to be, what Jesus won us to be for one another, a community of people formed around this gospel, brought together for worship, for encouragement, and for good works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. It never gets old. It's always new because your mercies are always new. And you proclaim to it to us over and over again that we might find our all in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become attentive to the things that pull at our hearts. That you would teach us wisdom to know the pluses that we are tempted um, to add to Jesus, to make ourselves feel whole, to comfort ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to dive in on our relationships and our friendships with one another. May we be authentic taking all religious costumes off, we can be real with each other and help us in the seasons when we're like Jason and we need someone singing the better song of the gospel in our ear, the seasons that we're more like Orpheus when we are the ones singing to our brothers and sisters. Bind us together in perfect love, the love that is ours in Christ, we pray. Amen.